This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Pandemic burnout. I'm hearing from nurses all over the province that they're really struggling. The cracks already showing in our healthcare system. Kids and COVID. What we don't know is whether there's a lot of infection going on that's been undetected. BC Research testing children to see if they're greater spreaders than first thought. And a truck drives right off the edge at Tawasson Ferry Terminal. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. BC's COVID-19 new case count is down today over the highs we have been seeing. However, hospitalization numbers and deaths are again a point of concern. We have 656 new cases today, bringing BC's total to 33,894. Sadly, we've had 16 more deaths, which means 457 people have now died. 336 people are in hospital. That's up 20, 76 of those patients in ICU. 23,774 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 8,796 active cases and 10,123 people in isolation. We'll bring in Keith Ballry right now for a little more context. And Keith, we're just shy of 8,800 active cases. What do we know about where those are located? Yeah, the pattern of where they're located has continued for some times and it's not changing. Fraser Health, the dominant region of where COVID is active right now. By active, these are cases where people have not cleared the 14-day incubation period. Take a look at the regional breakdown by Health Authority. Again, Fraser Health leads the way here with 73% of the cases. That's been the percentage for some time. Vancouver Coastal right next door, just 15% of the cases. And then Interior and the North and Vancouver Island with smaller numbers. One thing to keep in mind about the bottom three health authorities. They used to have almost no COVID, even though their percentages are fairly small. Uh, the number of, for example, on Vancouver Island, we had zero cases here for the longest period of time. Now we have 247 active cases, most of those in central uh, Vancouver Island. But clearly, Fraser Health still the dominant story of this pandemic in terms of where the cases are. And those are the active cases. And you saw me at, at five point out that most of the hospitalizations are in Fraser Health as well. So Fraser still really hasn't figured out how to combat this virus. And we'll just see how long this trend continues. I have a feeling it's going to continue for some time. All right, Keith Baldry and Victoria. Thanks, Keith. Now, growing concerns tonight about the increasing number of COVID-19 hospitalizations, which, as you saw, have now topped 330. As Richard Zussman reports, there are fears about how it will add stress to both the system and frontline workers. Pressure mounting. Because of the volume of covid it is causing uh, potentially a compromise to the care of other individuals. These numbers look at hospitalizations at the first of each month. At the peak of the first wave in April, 142 people in hospital. There was the decrease in summer, the surge in the fall, and now on the 1st of December, 336 people in hospital with COVID. There's a lot of moral distress as well about seeing people who are getting what we deem as preventable illnesses, you know, and getting very sick and even dying. 
Hospitalizations up 290% since November 1st. Intensive care COVID patients up 261%. And deaths now at 457, up 71%. But even with rapid growth, the province optimistic about the healthcare system. Under the circumstances, as you know, when you, when base and surge beds are taken into account, our overall hospital capacity uh, today is 69.7%. Government still has access to the new Vancouver Convention Centre to handle a potential further surge. Places like Burnaby Hospital and Lionsgate Hospital, where there have been COVID outbreaks, have been pushed to the limit. It is an extraordinary challenge for our staff and it reminds us why we have to, when in doubt, rule things out. And that pressure leading to burnout. The BC Nurses Union asking nurses back in June how they felt. 60% said they were exhausted and it's much higher now. The pandemic is certainly wearing on nurses. They um, have been struggling professionally and psychologically. And with reports in Alberta, a leaked document showing hospitalizations there projected to nearly double by mid-December, is leading to concerns similar growth could happen in BC. We just don't know where we will have uh, enough capacity if the numbers don't stabilize. At the current growth rate, BC could have more than 1,000 people in hospital by January. But there's optimism that the new restrictions put in place could cut the spread. And the province says that will help protect hospitals and those working inside. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. As COVID-19 continues to devastate BC care homes, there are growing calls tonight to find a new approach to caring for our most vulnerable population. Some families who have loved ones in long-term care homes now have an ally in BC's former provincial health minister as they push for rapid testing. Grace Key has more. 76-year-old Sandy Telford hasn't seen her daughter in person for a month. Delta View Care Centre has been through two outbreaks and patients are isolated in their rooms. Residents need their families and it, we've essentially been locked out since March, since the lockdown. There are 57 outbreaks involving long-term care facilities in BC. Former Provincial Health Minister Terry Lake, now CEO of BC Care Providers, is calling on the use of rapid testing for visitors and staff. There seems to be a reluctance based on the accuracy of the test compared to the gold standard PCR test. Uh, but we know that as you use these tests more and more on the same individuals uh, on a regular basis, their accuracy actually goes up with time. BC seniors advocate agrees, saying given the level of community transmission, extra layers of protection are needed. You would use the rapid test as a screening for staff, just as we use our masks uh, as an added layer of protection. And then if a person tests positive based on this test, uh, it's screening them for it, so it would be confirmed by the PCR test. Currently, we do carry out quite a widespread testing. Uh, so when we have concerns about transmission within a unit, uh, we do uh, a rapid testing of all of the um, uh, staff and patients and residents that are in that uh, unit. Sandy worked at Delta View as a resident care coordinator for 25 years. Now she's the one being cared for. Her daughter says families are important partners in care. As the daughter of someone who worked a lifetime to bring humanity to care in long-term residences, I really believe we can do better. Grace Key, Global News. 
The province-wide protest planned by parents' groups to keep their children out of school today appears to have gained little traction in the province's largest school district. The parents had hoped their sick-out would get the attention of the education ministry. They want better COVID protocols across the school system, including mandatory masks and contact tracing. But Surrey School District Superintendent Jordan Tinney says the protest has been a non-issue in his district and he's had no reports of any increased sickness or absenteeism. A BC researcher has launched a major new study to find out how many children and young people have actually had COVID-19 and what role they might play in its transmission. As Ted Chernecki reports, the study might help shape future COVID regulations. One thing that's certain about COVID and kids, and that is we certainly don't know everything that's going on. I think it's been a little bit of a puzzle from the start of the the pandemic in terms of why kids don't seem to have that severe disease. Um, I think the, the honest answer right now is that nobody knows. We do know a lot of kids have the virus but show no symptoms. And because they're not coughing and sneezing, one theory is they're not likely spreading the virus as much as adults. But UBC wants to know for sure and is asking up to 16,000 kids and young adults for a tiny blood sample. So we're hoping that through this, this study and through testing for antibodies, we'll be able to get a full picture of how many children and young adults in BC may have been infected during the course of the pandemic. Blood will show if COVID was once or perhaps is still there. A questionnaire will ask about the behavioural environment of those who test positive, and from that they can start modelling. Model what that, what that looks like and what we would expect to happen, you know, in different scenarios moving forward and to try and help policymakers and public health officials make, you know, as, as informed decisions as possible. Because they showed no symptoms, most kids were never tested. This study will have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Whether the participant is sick or not now won't matter because antibodies leave a viral trace, one that can indicate which virus caused the antibody to be created in the first place and perhaps even why that person showed no symptoms. Ted Chernock, Global News. More churches are pushing back against provincial health orders temporarily prohibiting religious gatherings. On Sunday, at least three Fraser Valley churches defied the ban and held in-person services. Now, according to one organizer, several dozen more are planning to do the same thing this weekend. Sarah McDonald reports. Tickets going to Calvary Chapel. It was the first of what could be many. Section 2, sub 2. Written up and issued to houses of worship across the province. This Langley pastor and his congregation finds $2,300 Sunday for defying provincial health orders and gathering to worship. Sorry, what ministry? Among those in attendance, longtime and polarizing social activist Carrie Simpson, who's now taken on this controversial cause. We would love to get this before the courts and uh, do a charter challenge. And Simpson says she's met with dozens of faith leaders since, seeking counsel on what to expect if they too open their doors to the faithful this weekend, with that provincial health order banning religious gatherings still in place until Monday at least. December 7th is sort of the line in the sand for a number of these pastors. We've reached out certainly to um, the Muslim community, the Sikh community as well. The BC Muslim Association echoing concerns circulating in the religious community surrounding what many in it view as a double standard. There is a frustration building up with respect to this type of double standard and double approach from the authorities. But the organization says it isn't aware of any mosques planning to go against the words of the province's top doctor. Because it's an official order, 
and there are reasons for it. Most faith leaders have been so strong in supporting their communities to do the right thing. The minority who haven't insist there's no data proving transmission in places of worship, a widespread notion Fraser Health dispelled on Tuesday. In fact, we have seen COVID-19 clusters or cases in temples, churches, and uh, prayer gatherings. Even so, some are still willing to risk it in a movement gaining momentum nationwide. If we're wrong, the court's going to tell us. If we're right, the court's going to tell us. And prepare to answer not only to God, but to the courts. God bless. Sarah McDonald, Global News. A shakeup in the condo insurance industry after backlash against skyrocketing premiums. The insurance industry responds with the stroke of a pen. But will it really save condo owners any money? That's next on the News Hour. Doctor announces he is transgender. The new reality for Elliot Page later on the News Hour. And a miracle 140 kilometers off the coast of Florida. A missing sailor so thankful he was spotted. That's later. Right now, though, the insurance industry is bowing to pressure to do something about those skyrocketing prices in strata insurance in B.C. The provincial regulator says insurers have agreed to end the practice of best terms pricing. Aaron MacArthur has more on how it works and why it inflates insurance costs for strata owners. Fall maintenance, like everything else in a strata building, costs money. Province-wide work is being done to help stratas manage their costs. Changes are coming in the new year to insurance premiums. So it opens up the field for competition. For the last year, the price of strata insurance has hit the stratosphere. Premiums have caught almost everyone off guard. In some cases, councils are seeing triple-digit hikes. The BC Financial Services Authority has been looking at the issue Today, one of the drivers of those increases has been eliminated. The insurance industry has agreed to uh, cease uh, using best terms pricing as a method to price strata insurance policies. Insurance for stratas? Complex. And to spread the risk around, multiple companies often take on different aspects of the coverage. The quotes for premiums can vary. But in the past, instead of taking the average in our example, 1500 the insurance industry would take the highest bid. According to the BCFSA, the higher premiums affected 94% of all stratas sampled. There was a general lift in the uh, overall prices by about 27%. The question is, what will replace best-term pricing? According to the insurance industry, the answer might be pricing from the lead insurer or maybe a weighted average. So I think that there's going to be an assessment of how to best do this. I think there's going to be a lot of learning along the way. Strata advocates are concerned this won't make much of a dent in pricing, but hopes at least prices will stabilize. The BC FSA has more recommendations pending its final report to government due by the end of the month. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The owner of an illegal hostel in North Vancouver has officially moved out. Emily Yu was seen packing her belongings into the back of a U-Haul van on Monday. Yu has been at the center of a long-running legal fight with her strata council over the use of her three-bedroom townhouse as the Oasis Hostel, hosting as many as 17 guests at a time. In 2018, she was found in contempt of court. 
and was later ordered to sell the property to pay $95,000 to the province and about $50,000 in fines and legal costs to the strata. In November, Yu was taken into custody after breaching terms of the court order and had been given until the end of the month to vacate the townhouse. Up ahead, a truck topples off a ferry ramp. Why everyone else was lucky it happened when it did. Also tonight, a rescue boat mishap in English Bay leads to serious injuries. Traffic is steady over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge in both directions tonight. Do keep in mind, though, lane closures for overnight maintenance between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $60 million plus an estimated eight max millions. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm sure she was in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. One person was taken to hospital after a frightening incident at the ferry to or the Tawasson Ferry Terminal this afternoon. This was the scene just after 12:30 today, after the ferry arrived from Duke Point. Officials say the last vehicle left on the ferry was driving off the vessel when the incident happened. The last vehicle to be unloaded off of the upper car deck uh, drove off the ship onto the terminal infrastructure ramp and uh, then accelerated rapidly, smashed through a uh, concrete wall and ended up dropping about 30 feet to the holding compound below. The driver of the vehicle was conscious and was taken to hospital for assessment. The incident is under investigation to determine how it unfolded. Two people were rescued from a sinking lifeboat in English Bay this afternoon. A bulk carrier anchored in the area was conducting a drill when the lifeboat with two crew members on board unexpectedly released. The crew members were seriously hurt and the lifeboat started taking on water. The Coast Guard, along with the Vancouver Police Marine Unit and Vancouver Port Authority, responded within 10 minutes. The stricken vessel was towed to shore and the injured crew members rushed to hospital. Their current condition is unknown. Three men have been charged in the gang killing of a 24-year-old man nearly three years ago. The body of Alexander Blanaru of Surrey was discovered back in December of 2017 on Bates Road in a remote rural part of Abbotsford. At the time, police said Blanaru was believed to be part of a criminal group tied to more than 30 shootings and that he'd been arrested a year earlier on gun charges. Today, homicide investigators announced three men have been charged in Blanaru's death. Islam Nagam and Edric Raju are charged with first-degree murder, and Michael Schweiger is charged with second-degree murder. Alexander Blanaru's homicide shocked our community. These horrific acts of violence shake our community's sense of safety and peace. Now, this was a highly complex and involved investigation, and it took a, a lot of effort, and we'd like to just say thank you to our core team of investigators from Ahid for, uh, for carrying the file for the last three years. Police also say Blanaru's killing was linked to the drug trade. Coquitlam Search and Rescue is dealing with a record number of calls lately and will be upgrading their equipment so crews can keep up. The team received a donation of $8,200 this morning from the Port Moody Foundation, which will go towards its e-mountain bike project. Crews say the e-bikes will help them respond to calls faster than on foot and allow them to search smaller trails.
the days are much shorter now and it, it gets a lot cooler at night. So it's definitely an advantage for us to get to people quickly because, you know, even if you take a fall, uh, you know, things can deteriorate quickly, especially if you don't have extra layers on. Coquitlam Search and Rescue is hoping to buy four new electric mountain bikes and will be able to deploy them in teams of two or four, depending on the nature of the call. Well, it's the 43rd annual CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day, but things were a little different this year because of the pandemic. And hopefully it sounds the same to you. Hopefully everything will continue as usual. You, we are reminding you of the great reasons why the Kids Fund is so important and what a difference it makes in the lives of so many children and families across B.C. For the first time ever, Pledge Day happened virtually. No in-person event this year, but we were very happy to welcome guests virtually to the largest fundraiser of the year for the Kids Fund and managed to raise over $1.3 million. But stay tuned in the coming days for the final total as we continue to accept donations online until midnight. Just visit cknwkidsfund.com if you'd like to help. So I think it's the history and just the knowledge that people know that when you do donate to the Kids Fund, that that money goes directly, like goes to families, gets to them in the little ways that they might otherwise fall through the cracks, but really makes a difference. And that's what we're here to do today. So thankful to Simi and all the other hosts that were on air and to everybody, especially who called in. All right. A new poll has found most Canadians say they will be changing their holiday plans this year because of COVID. Ipsos says 88 percent of Canadians said they will either cancel or change their plans, while 54 percent of respondents say they're reducing their contact with others. 34 percent say they're canceling their holiday plans altogether, but 11 percent say they're still going to go ahead with their holiday plans. Let's hope it's different next year because still to come, planning for the vaccine rollout. New information that shows who's most likely to get it first. And how U.S. Attorney General William Barr just dealt a killer blow to Donald Trump's allegations of election fraud. Cancer is relentless, but for every patient, every chemo appointment, every radiation treatment, BC Cancer is there to change the outcome. With your help, BC Cancer won't stop until it's done. Donate today at bccancerfoundation.com. Just pockets of volume southbound now on Highway 99 through Richmond on the approach to the Massey Tunnel. Counterflow is out. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside Walmarts and the Real Canadian Superstores throughout BC. For hours and locations, visit sussexinsurance.com. Open every day. I'm Trisha with Sending Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Another major blow to Donald Trump's accusations that the U.S. election was rigged, this time from one of his most ardent supporters. His hand-picked Attorney General, William Barr, says the Justice Department has uncovered no evidence of widespread voter fraud that would have overturned the election results. Barr directed U.S. attorneys across the country to pursue any substantial allegations of irregularities before the votes were certified. He says the attorneys found nothing to back any of the claims of fraud. A forensic psychiatrist testified today in defense of Alex Manassian, telling the court Manassian's way of thinking on the day of the Toronto van attack was similar to psychosis. Manassian has pleaded not guilty to 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. Catherine McDonald has more from the Oshawa, Ontario courthouse. 
Dr. Alexander Westfall testified that Alec Manassian has no regret or remorse about what he did on April 23, 2018, telling the court he is completely devoid of any emotion and any impact it had on others' lives. This infomercial was done by Manassian as a school project and was shown during the trial. Westfall said when he interviewed him, he referred to killing people as converting them from life status to death status, what Westfall called a completely abstract thing. One video clip was shown of Manassian being interviewed by Westfall in which he described running people down. The doctor called it shocking, a cold clinical description. It has the dissociative quality of someone that is playing a video game. It's how dispassionately he talked about it, like killing people in a video game. He still doesn't have any emotional connection with what he did. Westfall talked about Manassian's lack of empathy, saying that although the 28-year-old was not psychotic on the day of the attack, his thinking was severely distorted in a way similar to psychosis. The common point to all of this is that autism alters the perception and understanding of the world enough that it is really, really important when discussing culpability. These discussions have historically been in psychosis. Our understanding in ways people can be different have changed a lot since then. Court has heard that 90% of people found not criminally responsible have psychosis. The other three video clips shown in court, which have now been sealed, show Manassian explaining his sense of defeat after being arrested because his mission to die was incomplete. In another, he recites his Facebook post about the incel movement. Manassian admitted he was more concerned about failing at his new job and carried out the attack because he didn't want to fail. Westfall told the judge the only explanation that makes sense is he did not understand the harm and devastation he was inflicting. Catherine McDonald, Global News. One of Canada's most successful actors has made a major announcement about his life. The actor, formerly known as Ellen Page, says his name is now Elliot. He says he's transgender and identifies as non-binary, a term used to describe a person whose gender identity is neither man nor woman. Page says his pronouns are he and they. The Oscar-nominated star of movies like Juno and X-Men says he feels lucky to have arrived at this place in his life. There's another strange chapter in the ongoing monolith mystery. A three-meter-tall metal monolith appeared on a Romanian hilltop last week and has since disappeared. The strange structure looked similar to the monolith that was found in a remote part of a Utah desert about two weeks ago that was then removed under mysterious conditions this past weekend. The Romanian, uh, the Romanian artifact appeared to be made out of steel and welded together and it sounded hollow when tapped. Both of the artifacts resembled the alien monolith in Stanley Kubrick's 1968 film 2001 A Space Odyssey, a recurring symbol that appears to play a role in human evolution. In Health Matters tonight, the group advising the federal government on the COVID-19 vaccine rollout has updated its recommendations for who should get that vaccine first. As Abigail Beeman reports, given a lower-than-expected first round of supply, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization has moved to a ranking system. The committee released a list of key populations it felt should be immunized first, and no surprise, the vulnerable topped that list. At the time, a month ago, it didn't make any ranking suggestions about who among the vulnerable should get it first. But the chair of the committee tells Global News since then they learned Canada would be getting even fewer vaccines than expected in the first round, enough for 3 million Canadians. So they had no choice but to recommend a ranked system. People living in long-term care facilities and the staff taking care of them would go first. 
followed by other um, elderly Canadian, 80 plus. And then if the number of doses was uh, um, uh, was enough then to go down by five-year window to seven years of age. Um, vaccinate also healthcare workers, starting with those at the front line, so not those in offices, but really those who are in contact with patients, um, ideally those uh, taking care of COVID patients. And the fourth group was um, uh, people from Indigenous communities. The advice from the committee is not binding and still dependent on final data still needed from vaccine trials. But in general, the federal government says it will trust the advice of experts on this file. And it's not all up to Ottawa. Decisions about who to vaccinate ultimately fall to the provinces and territories. Discussions are underway between provinces and the feds about how to divvy up those doses in the first place when they arrive. There seemed to be a consensus that we should all agree across the country on what that list looks like and uh, make sure that it is applied fairly right across the country. There There are more conversations to come. Tuesday, Canada's chief public health officer said after the priority groups outlined, vaccinating based on age is the logical next step. Dr. Theresa Tam said it's the easiest and most scientifically sound way to protect more of the population. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Ottawa. On this World AIDS Day, the World Health Organization is calling for global solidarity. The WHO is asking for leaders and citizens across the world to rally in solidarity and help maintain essential HIV services during COVID-19. The WHO says protecting people from HIV during the pandemic and ensuring they can maintain treatment is critical. Researchers are investigating whether those with HIV have an increased risk of poor outcomes with COVID-19. Coming up, art with heart. And everyone said, I think it's I think it's something you need to do. How she's helping nurse neglected horses back to health, one photo at a time. And in sports, Squires take on how the Seahawks got their swagger back. You're watching Global News Hour at six. I can't even put into words how shocking it is that they saw him out there on that water. Yeah, it looks like a scene from a movie right after Yvonne's forecast, the miraculous rescue of a missing Florida man found clinging to his capsized boat. Wow, that is incredible (laughs) that he held on. All right, meteorologist Yvonne Shell is in for Christy. That is a beautiful shot. Is that? I can't see. This is this morning. Yeah, this is this morning. A beautiful start to our December, especially after what we saw in November with plenty of rain. Uh, This is from Vancouver, a shot overlooking Burnaby. It was just before 8 o'clock this morning. Dry with some sunshine in the mix and another couple of photos that were submitted. This one, snowshoeing in Mount Seymour, so thank you so much, Grant. And another one on top of Cypress Mountain taken by David this morning. We are going to see dry conditions, but there is some fog that's moving in overnight. Chilly once again will be close to and hovering the freezing mark. Fog for tomorrow morning and then a nice clearing is on the way by the afternoon and highs tomorrow will be up to eight degrees. Here's a quick glance though we do still have some active weather along the northern half of the province with the rain and very windy conditions. The current wind warning that is in effect southeasterly winds for the following areas in red 60 and up to 80 kilometers per hour but there is the potential to see gusts of upwards of 100 kilometers per hour and the wind should start to die down late this evening and a much calmer day is in store for tomorrow. 
Now, the precipitation across the northern half of the province, a bit of a lull between systems, and that'll be for the afternoon. And then late afternoon and evening, the next wave is going to push in. This same system will bring us some cloud cover. It'll likely be on Thursday. That'll be the blip in the forecast. And then it breaks up once again. We're back into some sunshine on Friday. Upper-level chart, a quick look at the long range as we get into Thursday. There's that cloud cover, sunny and dry for Friday. Leading in towards the weekend, we could see a bit of a transition or change, and that'll be on our Sunday. Now, the northern half of the province for tomorrow, so that next wave of rain moving in by the afternoon and evening. Much of the central interior, it's pleasant. Temperatures will be up to the freezing mark, and the southern half tomorrow will have dry conditions with the partly cloudy sky. Whistler, a cooler one tomorrow with highs up to 3 degrees. We'll have the fog for the morning hours along the south coast in the morning, clearing as we get in towards the afternoon. Sunny with highs up to 8 for tomorrow. That blip will be on Thursday with some cloud cover and then back into some sunshine. Bit of a change could be on the way, but that'll be for the latter half of the weekend. And that's still a few days out. We'll leave you tonight with tonight's weather window, central windows weather window. And this is a beautiful shot taken from Black Creek. So thank you so much, Kelly. Guys. Good camera work. So cute. Thank you, Yvonne. All right. Now that remarkable tale of survival after a Florida sailor was found alive clinging to his upturned boat following a night out at sea. 62-year-old Stuart B. left Port Canaveral Friday afternoon with his 32-foot vessel. He did not return and was reported missing the following day. No sign of him until a passing container ship spotted the missing sailor. There he is, holding tightly to a prow, the only part of the capsized boat above water. I didn't see anybody. I thought it was, uh, this was it. And then I, I saw um, container vessel. Uh, in the distance, and I, I don't have my glasses. I couldn't see if it was coming to me or not, but I began, I began waving and took my shirt off and waved at her periodically. Yikes. B says he managed to hold on to his stricken boat, and then he held on until he was rescued. And after holding on for so long, he somehow managed to swim to the life ring. I yeah. don't know how he managed that. And pull himself up the ladder, no problem, too. But I, I'm imagining there was some <laughs> adrenaline going through his... Yeah. System there after that rescue. Isn't that kind of like the ending of Castaway? <laughs> or close to it the is. ending? Wasn't it a freighter that came by and got remember. Tom Hanks? Oh, was it? Okay. I, I, only re- I only remember Wilson. Yeah, I know. Wilson <laughs> didn't deflated make it. Deflated soccer ball. Yeah. Uh, all right, Squires here. What's uh, coming up in sports? I got a big ribbon behind my head. See that? That's pretty. It's hard it's to be a Grinch when you got festive things around you. The uh, Seattle Seahawks are first in their division after that win over Philadelphia last night. Um, we are 8-3. and three. Damn, that feels good. Let's talk about that. Okay, we will talk about that. And it's not just the Seahawks offense that's doing all the heavy lifting. Also ahead, Passion Project. How a former competitive rider stays in the game by staying behind the camera.
longtime equestrian is putting her photography skills to good use to help raise money for the BCSPCA. Leanne Pennyuk spent months photographing and documenting the stories of horses rescued by the animal welfare organization. And her new book gives us a window into their much improved lives. Linda Aylesworth has the story. Milestone, better known as Milo, is a happy, healthy eight-year-old gelding who wants for nothing. But his life wasn't always so idyllic. Milo was a victim of abuse. He was born into it, so from zero to two, he was just sick, emaciated, really skinny, really sickly. When the BC SPCA seized him six years ago, his growth was stunted by malnutrition, and he had, understandably, trust issues. Even so, Shelby Dennis decided to adopt him. He had learned how to be a survivor, so everything he did was about surviving and not necessarily about doing what people wanted, especially like in a show horse. Each year, the BCSPCA seizes as many as 100 horses from unhealthy situations. Right now, they have 33 in custody. And they need funding. It costs approximately $35 a day to care for and feed one single horse. Leanne Pennyuk, an equine photographer, decided to use her talents to help create a book, Rescue Me, filled with photos and stories. It's not just about the, the tear-jerking moments of, of the seizures of these horses. It's more to celebrate the happily ever afters. They end so beautifully. You get to see horses that have come full circle in life that now have doting, loving owners. All the profits from Rescue Me, which cost $55, go to support the horses that are still looking for caring homes. Today we will be presenting the BC SPCA with a check for $10,000. I think it's fantastic and I think it's really important in showing people how far rescue horses can come. And Shelby should know, she has no regrets about her decision to adopt Milo. He's been able to do basically everything we've wanted him to do and more and he's exceeded my expectations by far. Rescue Me is available on the BCSPCA and Leanne Pennyuk Photography websites. The goal, to reach $25,000 by Christmas. Good boy, thank you. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Good boy. Milo. Those are some big kisses. Uh, it is Giving Tuesday, it makes sense. Um, see Absolutely. what you can do for BCSPCA. And thank you once again for everybody who listened and called in and donated online during CKNW Pledge Fund Day today. Wow, it was absolutely amazing. Mm. And you can still donate, cknwkidsfund.com. You can donate, like, all the time. 365 <laughs> days of the year. We'll take it. Exactly. Not just on Giving Tuesday. All right, final word on the weather from Yvonne. Uh, dry this evening. It is going to be chilly tomorrow morning. We do have some fog. It'll dissipate. A nice clearing is on the way. Pretty good-looking forecast. Cloud cover on Thursday should remain dry. And then a great start to the weekend on Saturday. Dry for the start of it and potentially some showers late in the day on Sunday. Love that sunshine. All right, thanks very much, Yvonne. And thank you for watching. Have a great night, everybody. Good night, all.